and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. All right, well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. And as you turn there, I want to tell you a true incident in history. In the year 202 AD, in the North African city of Carthage, there was a 26-year-old mother named Perpetua. A persecution rose in that Roman province during that time, and Perpetua was arrested with other known Christians and put into prison. They were all ordered to renounce their faith and make sacrifices to the Roman gods, but they refused. Perpetua's father brought her baby to the trial during that time and tried to persuade Perpetua to renounce her faith so that she could leave the prison. Holding the child up to her, he said, Perpetua, I beg of you, think of your son. And even as you hear that as a parent, uh, it just rips your heart out. The judge was moved and said to Perpetua, spare the gray hairs of your father, spare your child, offer sacrifices for the welfare of the emperor. Just say Caesar is Lord. Imagine having to face that situation as a believer. Perpetua loved her father. She loved her husband. She loved her son. But she would not renounce her faith. She answered, I will not sacrifice. Are you a Christian, demanded Hilarionis, the magistrate. I am a Christian, she said. Perpetua and the other Christians were sentenced to fight with wild animals in the Colosseum on Caesar's birthday, of all things. But in the prison, God gave her a dream. Now... Uh, we have to take all dreams and visions. Of course, we get back to the scriptures. But uh, many times throughout the pages of the Bible and throughout church history, we read of a dream helping someone uh, then go and talk to Christians and or read the Bible and become a Christian or a dream or vision given to Christians to encourage them. And of course, God will never tell you anything that, that away that wouldn't square with the scriptures. And that's not what happened for Perpetua either. Uh, she had a dream that helped her face the moment. In the prison, God gave her a dream that every animal sent to kill her would not be able to do it, that they would be stopped in the same way the lions had in the book of Daniel. So the martyrs came into the Colosseum that day. They were singing a hymn of triumph. They were told that since they would not sacrifice to the gods, their lives would be sacrificed to the gods. So they would not sacrifice to the gods. You'll be a sacrifice to the gods. The animals were let in, and the men were torn to pieces by leopards and bears. A young woman named Felicitas was gored by a bull, but no animals attacked Perpetua, just like her dream. The crowd was mesmerized, and the Roman authority became anxious. The crowds were beginning to actually support this Christian woman. A young gladiator was sent in to kill her. He was so shaken by having to do it, he did strike her several times, but not hard enough to kill her. He just didn't have the heart, even though he was a fierce Roman young warrior. Finally, she helped him by guiding the sword into her jugular vein. 
Well, folks, Perpetua went to heaven that day, but news of her courage and witness in the face of death spread throughout the Roman Empire, and many others became Christians despite the very real possibility of being killed for their faith. And for 2,000 years, remarkable Christian men and women have been testifying, both with their lips and with their lives, that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. In fact, the word martyr is the Greek word we get witness or testify, testimony from. And as Christians uh, gave witness, gave martyr, martyrio to their faith, some of them actually were killed for the faith. And so the word became synonymous with giving your life for the faith. To be a martyr for Christ is uh, not to kill others in his name the way that uh, suicide bombers talk about in Islam today, uh, but instead to witness for Christ and have others kill you because they can't tolerate your message. We see that kind of faith called for in all believers in today's passage from 1 Peter. John 16, Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, but be courageous. I have conquered the world. Now, persecution does take on different forms. And there is kind of a persecution spectrum that goes from lesser persecution all the way to greater persecution. It goes from people resenting you because of your faith to uh, annoying you because they don't follow your faith, they want to mock you, to harassment, uh, to prejudicial treatment against you, to threats, to physical acts, uh, all the way up to martyrdom, having your life taken for the faith, but really given in witness. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if they do the worst thing they can do to you, kill you for your faith, then the best thing happens to you, you're in the presence of the Lord. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, as the Apostle Paul said. Well, with that said, let's get ready. We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Peter writes, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, gentleness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it's better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil." For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Be prepared, not fearful. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the words that we find here in 1 Peter 3. And we thank you for all of 1 Peter. We thank you for the great instructions it is for Christians facing difficult times and various trials and various levels of acceptance and rejection of the faith. Lord, we thank you for how Peter has talked about the, what can't be taken from us, our living hope that is our secured place in heaven. Uh, we thank you so much for him talking about how we've been born again, not by perishable seed, but that which is imperishable, the Word of God. We thank you for how he went on to talk about relationships and uh, how we are to honor you in the various relationships that you give us in life. And now we're in this section where he talks about living during difficult days when people sometimes don't like our faith. And Lord, here, as it relates to being witnesses, Lord, he tells us to be prepared and not fearful, to get in trouble for doing the right things, not the wrong things. 
And Lord, we pray that as we work down through this passage, Lord, you would help us uh, as we face the challenges we do amidst trouble. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Be prepared, not fearful. That's the title of this message. Well, folks, as we walk down through this text, I want to go over four challenges that Christians, for Christians amidst the troubles that they face. And the first one is to get in trouble for the right reasons. So there's your fill in the blank. To get in trouble for the right reasons. <laughs> I've told the story before, but when I was first a believer, I was a senior in high school and I hadn't been in church before. And uh, I became a Christian and God was working in my heart and life, but I was a hot mess, you know, as young baby Christians are. And I remember the deacons, the ones that hand out the bulletins, the ones that welcome you into the church there at most churches, would stand at the door and they said the same thing to everybody that would pass. Uh, and they really liked when they talked to a young guy like me. And they would hand me that bulletin there and they would put their finger uh, in my stomach. Uh, and say, you're staying out of trouble, aren't you? You're staying out of trouble, aren't you? You're staying out of trouble, aren't you? And I thought that was odd. It seemed like this alien-type greeting, you know, that uh, Baptists would give. And so I just thought, I guess that's what they do. Um, but I was reading in my Bible, too, you know. Somebody had given me a Bible, and I began reading in it. And uh, I came to that passage where Jesus said, In the world you will have trouble, but take courage, I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. And so I got to thinking about what the deacon said and what Jesus said. They said, stay out of trouble. Jesus said I was going to have trouble. And I remember one day when I went into the church there, that deacon poked me in the stomach and he said, uh, staying out of trouble, aren't you? And I looked at him and I said, sir, I'm not trying to stay out of trouble. Uh, Jesus told me I'd get into trouble. I'm now trying to get into trouble for the right reasons. <laughs> And I think the next week when I came in, he, he looked shocked at me that day, but the next week I came in, he saw me, and he poked me in the stomach and said, you're staying out of trouble, aren't you? So I don't know if I did any good there or not. But, uh, but those words have always come back to me because, yeah, we're going to get in trouble in this world. The question is whether we get in trouble for sinful reasons, wrong reasons, or whether we get in trouble for the right reasons, our faith and love for God and the times we do the right thing in a world that's always taking shortcuts. In verse 13, um, he says, it says, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Who's going to harm you if you do the right thing? Every other instance of this word for harm in the New Testament refers to physical harm, so it's probably talking about it that way here too. And this links with uh, this verse with the verses that Peter just wrote about in verses 8 through 12. If you choose to react by, to insulting words about your faith by not retaliating but by seeking peace, this righteous conduct ordinarily will move the situation away from violence. You know, the Bible says a gentle answer turns away wrath, but not always. Sometimes they're just not going to like you because of your faith. But uh, it says, he was he will harm you if you become followers of what of good. Verse 14 says, the first part, but even if you suffer, should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. The idea here is privileged or honored. So if you get in trouble for the right reasons, there's a blessing that attaches to that. Reminds me of what Jesus said back in Matthew 5 during his uh, Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the right thing, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. And Peter uses the same word for blessed here in our passage that he heard Jesus say in that sermon. So Jesus, Peter was listening when Jesus spoke and this came back to him. And uh, I, I just love that. I, I love that. I remember before I was a Christian, I would insult 
Christians. I would mock them. I would laugh at them. I'd scorn them. And uh, some uh, reacted very poorly. Others, uh, you know, said, uh, you know, tried to love me back. And I don't know if it registered with me very much. But here uh, we read that heaven is registering and will reward that which is done for Christ, even if it is a good response to a, a poor um, words of others, insulting words, mocking words, persecuting words and actions. So the blessedness in view here is the certainty that comes from belonging to God and His kingdom with the promise of future vindication. Uh, so he says, uh, you know, who is he will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Uh, but let's make sure we're getting in trouble for the right reasons. And that's why in verses 16 and 17, he comes back and says, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, Man, the Bible talks about those, woe to those who call what's wrong right and what's right wrong. And we're in that kind of day where there's actually an affirmation of things the Bible calls wickedness, wickedness sexually, uh, uh, you know, um, not holding God's definition of uh, sex for marriage, but instead uh, promoting the ideas of fornication and adultery and sexual sin and homosexuality and other forms that deviate from what uh, God's Word says is the proper use of sexuality. And so we're called the evildoers for reinforcing what the Bible says about what sex is for. So have a good conscience, verse 16 and 17, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it's better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So if you are a young person and uh, want to keep your virginity for marriage and honoring the Lord like we should, uh, then uh, you'll be blessed for that even if others mock you for that. Uh, if you, uh, you know, uh, refuse to have an alcoholic drink or a puff of marijuana when that's what's happening with the people around you, uh, they might mock you for not joining them in that, but you will be blessed by God. And we hate to frame it just in terms of what you don't do. Sometimes it's what you do that's positive. You know, uh, you may see a need that needs to be met and go and do it, helping mow a neighbor's lawn or move their snow or giving uh, back money when you find it uh, when you, uh, rather than keep it. Uh, uh, telling the truth when you could have told a lie, etc., and your friends may mock you for that. Your acquaintances may mock you for that, but uh, the Lord will bless you for that. In other words, make sure that those who speak evil of you are in error. And that's why he refers to the conscience. Your conscience will be tuned to God's Word as you read it, and the Holy Spirit will use the Word and use your conscience, and uh, there's, such a, there's a good way to have guilt and, uh, you know, um, and he'll remind you what the scripture teaches and he'll use it, to, the word to tune your hearts to, and your conscience to do what pleases God. J. Vernon McGee said, if you suffer for Christ's sake, you can rejoice in that. But if you are suffering because you have played the fool, because you've gotten into trouble and into sin, then that is a different story altogether. That's so good. A little more on this word conscience. Conscience comes from two Latin words. Con means with and co means to know. Put them together and you get to know with. Your conscience presses you to know the truth about yourself, whether you like it or not. So if you're doing the right things for Jesus, your conscience will excuse you when you're criticized. Meanwhile, the critic's conscience will accuse them, which in turn, hopefully, will lead them also to turn to Christ. I've had many people mock me for being a preacher, preaching the word, preaching tough things before. Uh, but 
I've had a lot of people over the years come back and say, Danny, thank you for telling me the truth when everybody else was telling me lies. Thank you for telling me what I needed to hear when I only wanted to surround myself with people who told me what I wanted to hear. And, uh, you know, when the Lord gets a hold of their heart and uses your words and the words of scriptures and other things to bring them to Christ, they'll be your friend then. And uh, in the meantime, you want to be a friend of heaven and obey God's call in your life and fulfill the ministry that he has for you. So, first of all, the challenge for Christians amidst trouble is to get in trouble for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons. And then the second challenge is to focus on Jesus, not our fears. I think of again about verses 14 and 15 there. Uh, Look what it says. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Set apart the Lord God in your heart. Don't be afraid of men's words, but instead respect being afraid of what God thinks and what his word are, words are. People get so afraid by all the what-ifs related uh, to what countries and governments and politicians do, uh, but we need to think instead about how God views things. I think this relates, this story I'm going to tell. During the Cold War, many people were afraid to die in a nuclear incident. So we're going back to the time of the 50s. Uh, you know, the World War II had ended, but uh, Russia was stockpiling nuclear arms, and so was America, you know, and people were like, oh, no, one's going to hit the button, and the other's going to hit the button, and we're all going to die. And, and people in London were thinking, oh, no, it could come from any direction if the wrong people pushed the button, you know. And so there became a real fear of death, and people built bomb shelters and other things, you know, And in London, Martin Lloyd-Jones was asked to speak to the people about this, this fear of dying in a nuclear-type incident. In a memorable sermon, Lloyd-Jones said the problem was more foundational than not being ready to die in the case of a nuclear attack. The problem was you're not ready to die at all. And he told the people, because you don't have faith in Christ, you're filled with fear. If you have fear and fear, uh, if you have fear and love for God and you know Christ, if you're saved, if you're born again, then uh, you won't be afraid of death. And so the way you die won't concern you as much because you know where you'll be when you die. And this is a week where, uh, a two-week stretch where I've been involved uh, in two or three funerals, either doing them or going to them or talking to people that were going to one. And uh, all three of these happen to be super strong believers. And what a difference it makes when you've got people that you know are now in heaven with Christ and other loved ones and all the saints in glory and the angels. Uh, What a difference that is than when you know people have gone to Sheol and Hades and are awaiting the final great white throne judgment and will go to the lake of fire. Uh, or at least you're not sure that they uh, were a real believer and that that might have been their end or what the end is coming for them. Uh, it makes all the difference in the world. Jesus in Matthew 10:28 said, Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Uh, so Christians throughout history have had to live under the same uncertainties and troubles of their neighbors, but they face them knowing God is in control. I hope that's been true of you. Uh, it was right this past couple years, uh, this last year, or it looks like it's turning into two years now. It is right to put other people at ease by, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
maintaining social distance and wearing the mask. I mean, the whole world had to get to the point where there was going to be a vaccine and things like that. But I hope uh, people have noticed about you that because you have faith, you didn't have fear. Uh, that you were, uh, you know, and I'm afraid that uh, for some, uh, all people thought of was fear. And for others, you know, certainly, again, we're not talking about recklessness, but if you know you're going to go to heaven when you die, you can face all situations with life. And the reality is that before COVID or some pestilence or nuclear bomb attack or whatever could get you, uh, you may very well die in a car accident, you know. So we need to be ready to meet our God through faith in Christ. And when we are, then we will be able to focus on Jesus, not our fears. That's why Paul, when he had a sickness and when he was writing to his friends in Philippi, he said that uh, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Um, don't focus on your fear. Do focus on Jesus. The fear of the Lord, we're told, conquers every other fear. Well, the third area of challenge, first we saw, of course, that we're to get in trouble for the right reasons amidst trouble, to get in trouble for the right reasons. Then we saw to focus on Jesus, not on our fears. And the third thing is to be ready to witness in the right way. So now we think of um, the uh, other part there of... Um, verses 15 and 16, second part of verse 15 into verse 16. He says, And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. So that word there for defense, you may have heard this, it's the Greek word we get apologetics from, apologia. Uh, it's not that we're apologizing for anything. It's a defense. It's defending the faith, uh, giving people reasons to believe the faith. Uh, this could be in a formal setting, like a court trial, 2 Timothy 4.16 uh, seems to have that in mind. Uh, let me read it for you real quickly, 2 Timothy 4.16, which says, At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. Uh, but uh, it could be an informal setting, like the questions of a friend or neighbor. And Peter's audience perhaps faced both kinds, the questions of neighbors, uh, the questions of family members and friends, uh, the questions of those that may wonder why they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord and might want to arrest them and even uh, further uh, like that. Peter himself wound up dying for the faith because he would not uh, deny the faith before the emperor. Peter uses hope as a synonym for the faith. Give a defense to everyone and ask you a reason for the faith that you hold, the hope that is in you. Now what's happening here? Peter pictures believers suffering in some way, others noticing that happening and seeing how they respond because of their faith in Jesus. And he pictures non-believers asking, why do you do it? If you just said Caesar is Lord, it wouldn't happen. And Peter says, in that moment, you should be ready to share the reasons why you believe in Jesus with them. So let's put it into today's terms. Two people get a cancer diagnosis and one knows the Lord and another doesn't. And one is so afraid to die that they are just um, besides themselves. And they notice the person they're getting the chemo treatments with has peace about them, uh, even though they're a stage further along in the diagnosis and could more possibly die than, than they would. They, they notice the Christian uh, has a calm about them, has a joy about them, has uh, a, a settledness about them, and they say, how do you do it? 
Uh, how can you do it? We, we, we might die. And yet uh, you uh, seem so settled. You seem so at peace. And that's when the believer shares the reasons for the hope that is in them. They know Jesus. They know uh, they have a reserved place in heaven for them to live as Christ and to die as gain. It's part testimony and part going over the facts of the gospel that have uh, become personally owned through faith. Uh, that Jesus is alive and is in heaven interceding and that when we're absent from the body we'll be present with our dear Jesus. Um, Wow. So be ready to share when you're facing the same thing, but you face it in a Christ-like way and they don't, and they want to know what the difference is. Really, troubles come to believers and non-believers alike, uh, afflictions, adversities. And it's only when we respond in a Christ-like way that people can see a difference. And when they see the difference in our lives, ask us for the explanation from our lips. Uh, Let's be clear. Let's clear one thing up here. Uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew 10, uh, verses 18 through 20, look at these words. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the nations. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you should speak. For you will be given what to say at that hour because you are not speaking, but the spirit of your father is speaking through you. Some, maybe you've heard some people talk like this, some will use those verses to say that we shouldn't prepare to be ready to witness. But here in our passage, Peter makes clear that we should prepare to give a reasoned explanation for our belief. So on the one hand, Matthew 10 says you'll be given what to say when you're on trial in that hour. Uh, but here, Peter tells us to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's within you. How do we reconcile those things? Uh, folks, those passages don't compete with each other. They complement each other. Uh, so when Jesus said, don't worry about what to say, he wasn't saying, don't be prepared for what to say. So don't worry about what to say, but do be prepared for giving the basics of uh, the fact that uh, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried. He rose on the third day. He, he, he was alive, he ascended to heaven, and you know the facts about what his saving death does for sinners who turn to him and let him be the substitute for their sins, and all those great things that we talk about uh, and that you testify to that you've owned by faith and that you're now seeking him by faith. J. Vernon McGee said a great quote here. He said, This means you ought to know more than a little about the Bible. The tragedy of the hour is that there are so many folk who say they are Christians, but the skeptic is able to tie them up into 14 different knots like a little kitty caught up in a ball of yarn. They cannot extricate themselves at all. Why? Because of the fact that they do not know the Word of God. Now, this doesn't mean you're supposed to know as much as a preacher who has studied the faith or an atheistic professor who has studied or a cult member that uh, only has focused in on trying to get Christians confused and things like that. But, uh, you know, it does mean that you should uh, put some arrows in your quiver, so to speak, as time passes to be able to speak a little bit about why we have confidence in the scriptures, uh, why we have, um, you know, confidence that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And uh, every Sunday morning, I give you a little bit that equips you that way. And hopefully over the years, it turns into a whole lot. Sunday school teachers do the same. All kinds of great uh, books have been written that uh, answer some of the basic questions. There's now wonderful websites 
websites you can go to that do the same thing. All kinds of resources that are out there. And uh, utilize them. Uh, take your faith seriously enough and the people you want to reach for Christ, be respectful enough toward them to take the time to learn a little bit how to answer their questions. Lifestyle evangelism is foundational, but not enough. Lifestyle evangelism is the necessary forerunner of proclamation evangelism. Uh, I love Revelation 12:11. It says, They conquered him, the saints conquered Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And our testimony is pointing to what Jesus has done for us, the facts of his saving death for sinners and his resurrection to conquer Satan, sin, death, and hell. The word of their testimony. Verse 16a says, Do this when you're giving this answer to others with meekness and fear. Gentleness and respect would be good ways to say that. Peter knows that stressed out people give sharp retorts as he had done when he denied Christ. Uh, but uh, now he was more seasoned in his faith. He understood uh, the anger of people hostile to faith. And he knew the proverb that says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. And he was able to respond. And I've tried to do that over the years and had some success in sharing with others by um, being uh, not getting... Uh, all worked up when they are uh, uh, spewing their invectives against Christ and church and Christians and those things. I've tried to be patient and loving. Second uh, Timothy 4.2 says that it's our job to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season. That means whether they're really ready to hear it or not ready to hear it. Uh, and then he says, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. So we do our best from what we know to convince them of the truth of the Lord. We rebuke false notions, even though people don't like to be rebuked. And so sometimes that means studying to say, you know, show inconsistencies in some of the ways that they think. Uh, and then we exhort. An example of that is when people take up the doctrine of suffering and they say, I could never follow a God that allows children to suffer. And that sounds all good, and it is very serious when you've done a child's funeral or had a child die. And so there's an emotional part of that that's really behind that. But if we do get down to the talking about it level, uh, I like to, when people bring that to me, I say, well, if you really want to talk about this, let's talk about it. And I'm going to give you the answer from the scriptures. But first, you know, we're, we don't live in a vacuum. We live in an actual world. And no matter what, suffering is in this world. And so we have to process really how any way of looking at the world, any way of holding faith or non-faith would treat this topic of suffering. And so I love to walk people through that. What does atheism do? It says that the reason you're suffering is because that there is no God, there is no creation. Uh, we evolved, um, and life is really like the Serengeti water pool. You know, you're, a, uh, you're either a lion or a giraffe. You're either a, uh, the one harming others or being harmed. And so, uh, you know, bad things happen. It's a chaotical world, and then you die. There's no... Uh, thing that makes sense of suffering. There's no sense of hope for the future, and all you do is die. There's no hope for after this life. Uh, Eastern religions say some version of karma. Uh, they tell you you're suffering because you deserve it, <laughs> uh, either for what you did in the past life or in this life. And there is really uh, no, um, you know, uh, 
reason to rise up and act against suffering. In fact, uh, uh, Buddhism extols uh, pa being passive in the midst of suffering around you, uh, which uh, doesn't really challenge you to do something about unjust structures around you. It tells you to accept it, to rise above it, to not worry about being attached to things in this life. So you meditate your way, and the hope is that when you die, and, and Hinduism also, uh, you know, brings in things that say, you know, the future hope is to be like a drop that goes into the ocean, and then it's just you're part of the whole future reality uh, without any personal identity. Well, there's not much that does, that doesn't really do a lot for me. Christianity, of course, teaches that there is suffering, that, that God created perfectly uh, Adam and Eve, and so there was no suffering in the Garden of Eden. Sinful human choice, the reality of being allowed to choose, meant they could choose evil. They did, and that's brought sin into the world. And so all the suffering can be traced back to original sin. Sometimes we suffer because of our own sinful choices. Sometimes we suffer because of the sinful choices of others toward us. Sometimes we suffer just because this is a, a sinful world that goes back to Adam and Eve's original sin. And uh, that itself would be hard to swallow uh, if that was just the reality and that's all there is. But thank God that's not all there is. So the Bible tells us why you know, we understand it ought to be different because we've been created in the image and likeness of God. We know things are, are not like they should be. If evolution and atheism was true, people wouldn't know uh, the things they're suffering. They would just be trying to avoid it. Um, but in, uh, we understand as Christians that we were created but fallen. It's the reality we face. But then we get to where the fact is that God has done something about human suffering uh, he has come into this world, and Jesus suffered more than anybody ever had. He suffered not for any sin of his own, but for all the sins of the world. And so he can identify with those who suffer. He can save those who turn to him. And when they do, he not only saves them and gives them their perspective, but he immediately challenges them to do something about this world of suffering, to take the gifts and the talents and the resources they've had and to bless the world, and Christians always have in medical ways and in health ways and in education ways and other ways. So we make a difference now because of our faith, and then the Bible teaches that after this life we'll get to go to heaven and be with him later on a new earth, a perfect earth. And so there's not only hope for the now and a reason to work for the now, but there is hope for eternal life. And so when you put together all the different views about suffering from atheism to Eastern religions to the Christian faith, I'll take the Christian faith version every time, uh, you know, even though uh, I, we all hate to suffer. Uh, it gives us a perspective amidst suffering that nothing else can give and a reason to do noble things, even if it means we might die, uh, such as greater love has no one than this, that a person lay down their life for their friends. Stepping in front of a bullet for another person, you know, only makes sense as a choice in the context of, you know, knowing uh, that you're going to go to be with God when you die and that this will help the other person and that uh, you've made a difference, even if your life is shorter because of that moment. So anyway, fear, uh, do give a reason for the hope that's in you. Do it with meekness and fear, gentleness and respect, and the dignified respectfulness of their speech. Uh, this is the African Bible commentary saying, the dignified respectfulness of their speech should stand in sharp contrast to the malicious slander of those who attack them. Gentleness trusts God to do the work of changing attitudes. Respect is a reverential awe of God, not fear of men. 
And so, Warren Wiersbe says, we are witnesses, not prosecuting attorneys. Peter did not suggest that Christians argue with lost people, but rather that we present Christ to them. And that is so good. We're witnesses, not attorneys, which is great. Well, we've got four challenges. The first one was to get in trouble for the right reasons. The second one was to focus on Jesus, not our fears. The third one was to be ready to witness in the right way. And the final one is to remember what Christ's suffering accomplished. The first part of verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So we want to remember what Christ's suffering accomplished. That's your fill-in-the-blank, the word accomplished. I'm so thankful for Christ's death for sinners. Uh, Colossians 1.24 is interesting. It says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you, Paul says, and I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. That's an interesting verse because uh, Paul says that there was something lacking in the Colossians churches uh, sufferings. Now, there's nothing lacking in Christ's sufferings for the church. Uh, his death actualizes salvation for all who believe. But any suffering that Christians wind up doing as they try to get the message to others is to get people access to that saving message. So we talked about that persecution spectrum. If you go, if you take courageously and boldly present Christ to people. You will be insulted by some, mocked by some, perhaps really lashed out at by some. You might lose your job or some other vindicatory thing done toward you, especially in the age we live in now, uh, where uh, you know people just hate to hear any speech they disagree with. You know, they they want people to have the right to free speech as long as it's speech that agrees with them. And here we bring in the gospel that says you're not okay. Uh, you need Jesus. You're a sinner who needs Jesus, and that hurts some people's feelings you know. Uh, but uh, it's the truth, and so we share it with them. And the Holy Spirit uses that truth to save some, even though others persecute us. And around the world, some even die for that message still today. So Christ suffered to actualize salvation for all who believe. Uh, Christians suffer to get people access to that saving message. Well, we opened up with the story of Perpetua. Let's close with the story of a fellow named Matthew. You may have heard about the 2015 kidnapping and beheading of 21 Egyptian Christians by ISIS. The video footage of their martyrdom was circulated online. I am not recommending you go and find it. I haven't seen it. I do know it's gruesome. It's beheadings after all. A story that has only come out since is that one of the men was not Egyptian. His name was Matthew Iagora. Matthew was actually a non-believer from the country of Chad who happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time when he was kidnapped along with these Egyptian men. Matthew was his name. And, um, or maybe, you know, wrong place, wrong time, but maybe from heaven's perspective, we would say that the Holy Spirit had him at the right place at the right not time to witness the courageous testimony the Egyptian Christians had as they were killed. Now, they had them lined up, and one by one they asked them to renounce their faith or proclaim their faith, and one by one the others were martyred before Matthew, sealing their testimonies with their own blood. And uh, he was not first in line, he was down the line. When the terrorist asked Matthew if he rejected Jesus, he resolutely looked forward and said, Their God is my God. Matthew Iagora there became a modern-day thief on the cross, didn't he? He embraced Christ just before his death. He was so inspired by these others boldly proclaiming Christ despite their suffering 
that he wanted in on the kind of faith that would make someone that bold. And even though he knew it would instantly cost him his life to publicly confess Christ, he did it anyway. When we think of the faith of people like Matthew, Ayrga, and Perpetua, who sealed their witness with their own deaths as martyrs, uh, it really renders lame our excuses about why we won't publicly testify about Christ before men or why we won't publicly be baptized before men uh, because we're afraid of being in front of a group of people. Um, I don't want to be insensitive to such things, but uh, this is part of taking our stand with all those who have gone before and professed Christ. Matthew didn't get that chance because he was beheaded right there, but if he had had the chance, I'm sure he would have been baptized as a believer after that. And um, so what a thing we've learned today and talked about. On the back of your notes, I've given you some extra material, uh, great quotes from Christians, uh, some scriptures and some Christians uh, that have gone before and are on the scene now about their faith related to being prepared and not fearful in the midst of uh, a world that does not like to hear us talk about Christ, but um, the, a world that desperately needs our witness. And as we publicly and courageously proclaim the faith and once for all delivered to, to the saints, as we get in trouble for the right reasons, as we focus on Jesus, not our fears, as we're ready to witness in the right way, and as we remember what Christ's suffering accomplished, we boldly share and leave the results to God. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.